Hey, Genesis chapter 49 this morning. <clears throat> Genesis 49, and we'll start reading from verse 16. <clears throat> Genesis 49, verse 16 says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that bindeth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we are so very thankful that we can be here this morning, that we can gather around your word and just uh, spend time considering the truths therein. Lord, I pray that this morning you would give us understanding of the passage before us, that, Lord, you would teach us and instruct us through it. Bless us, refresh us this morning, as only you can. Lord, I pray that you would empower me now through the Spirit, and that, Lord, it would be your words and your thoughts, and that you would be honoured and glorified in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week we looked at the prophecy concerning Issachar uh, there in verses 14 and 15. And the prophecy to Issachar really concluded Jacob's words unto the, unto the six sons of Leah. And so he sort of dealt with those six sons first. And now in verse 16, he turns his attention to the four sons born unto his wives' handmaidens, um, Bilhah and Zilpah. And the first of these sons mentioned here is Dan. And Dan was the firstborn son unto Bilhah. And if you remember, she was Rachel's handmaiden. And of course, she gave Bilhah unto her husband Jacob uh, to be his concubine, his wife, if you like, uh, because she was envious of her sister. Of course, Leah had already had four sons by this time. And so she was envious, she was jealous. Uh, that she was still barren, she hadn't had any children. And, and so instead of waiting any longer, instead of waiting upon the Lord, she decided to take matters into her own hands. And so she decided to give Bilhah unto her husband. And effectively, Bilhah would be a surrogate mother, if you like. Any children that she bore would be counted as belonging to Rachel. And Bilhah, of course, quickly conceived and she gave birth to a son and Rachel named him Dan. And the name Dan means judge or judgment, vindication. And she believed that this son was proof that God had vindicated her decision, that God had vindicated her plan. You know, that he had heard her complaints and he had answered her by working through this scheme that she had developed. And of course, we know that just because her scheme worked didn't mean it was God's will, didn't mean it was blessed by God. You know, Rachel should have been patient. She should have waited upon the Lord. And in his time, she would have two sons of her own. She would have Joseph and Benjamin. And so she should have waited, but she rushed ahead of God. She acted out of jealousy and Dan was born. And of course, Dan's birth was quickly followed by Nephtali. And then Leah, she would respond by giving her own handmaiden, Zilpah, unto Jacob. And Zilpah would bear Gad and Asher. And so you have these four sons, Dan and Nephtali, Gad and Asher. These are the four sons born unto these concubines as a result of this jealous rivalry that's going on between the
the two sisters. And you know, growing up, these four sons probably felt a little inferior to the other sons. You know, they probably felt like they were a little bit like second-class sons because they weren't the sons of Leah or Rachel. They were the sons of concubines. And it's perhaps for that reason that Jacob begins his words to Dan, the eldest of these four, by saying there in verse 16, he says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. You see, he begins by making it clear to Dan and indeed to the others as well. He's making it clear to them that they're not second-class sons and they're not going to be classed as second-class tribes either. You know, that somehow they will just be subjected unto the others, that they'll lose their independence. But rather they will be as one of the tribes of Israel. They will be full tribes, complete tribes, on equal footing with the others. One commentator wrote this, He wanted to assure these four sons that regardless of their so-called inferior births, they also would be blessed as part of the tribal groups. And so these words not only assured Dan of his place, but indeed the other three as well. Okay, Nephtali, uh, Gad and Asher, it assures them all of their place in the inheritance. You know, all of them are assured that they will be fathers of independent, self-governing tribes in the commonwealth of Israel. And so these are words of assurance to Dan and the others. And then in verse 17, he goes on to give us a description of the character of Dan, of the, the tribe that will bear his name. Verse 17 says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. So Dan is described here as a serpent in the way, an adder in the path. Now the picture is of a, a serpent, a snake, lying hidden on the road. And the word adder here uh, refers to the serestes or the horned serpent, which had the color of sand. And, and so it easily hides itself in the path on the road. And so it makes them particularly dangerous to those traveling on the road, you know, biting at the heels of the horse, throwing the rider off, as Jacob alludes to here with these words. And so the serpent, the adder, you know, is a small creature, but it's cunning, it's dangerous. It strikes panic into that which is much larger than itself. And so the imagery given here speaks of the character of the tribe. It tells us that although Dan is going to be a very small tribe, and indeed they are very small compared to the other tribes, even though they're going to be very small, they're going to still be quite capable of holding their own. They're still going to be dangerous in their own rights. Now they're going to be like a dangerous snake, hiding in the way, hiding in the grass, hiding on the path. But it also speaks of their crafty nature, their deceptive nature. One commentator wrote this, this is intended to signify the subtlety of that tribe, which should conquer their enemies more by craft than by strength or force of arms and by art and policy and surprise gain advantages against them. These words lead us to expect in the history of this tribe an account of some very dishonorable actions. And so there is, if you like here, a dual meaning to this prophecy. Okay, there's a dual meaning. It speaks of their, you know, they're small, but they're still going to be dangerous. They're going to still inflict pain on others. 
But then it also speaks of this deception, this subtlety, okay, dishonorable conduct, if you like. And so then as we look for fulfillment to the prophecy, it's not a surprise to find that there's actually two fulfillments to this prophecy of this character of the tribe of Dan. And so we see it fulfilled in two ways. Let's look first of all at the first fulfillment. It's seen in Samson. The first fulfillment is seen in Samson. You know, Jacob declared in verse 16 there, he said, Dan shall judge his people. Shall judge his people. And Samson was one of the most famous judges of all. And he was from the tribe of Dan. Go over to Judges chapter 13 with me. Excuse me. Judges 13, let's just read verse 1. It says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And then drop down to verse 24 of the same chapter. <clears throat> it says, And the woman bare a son, and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtuel. So here we see that Samson, one of the um, most prominent judges, ones that we know and we think about, Samson is from the tribe of Dan and he begins his work primarily as a deliverer for the tribe of Dan. He's working to deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines. And of course it has an effect for others as well, but primarily he's working in that region where Dan is located. You see, the tribe of Dan's allotment was along the southwest Mediterranean coast uh, of the Promised Land, and that meant that right next door was the Philistine nation. Okay? They bordered each other. And so this meant that the Danites were constantly under threat from the Philistines. You know, Their farms constantly being attacked. Their villages constantly being attacked. They were oppressed by this powerful, mighty nation. And it was for this reason that God raised up Samson, a deliverer. God empowered him, gave him the the strength that he had to do this great work. You know, the exploits of Samson are recorded for us in Judges chapter 14, right through to Judges chapter 16. And Samson, of course, is famous for his unconventional way in which he delivered the people. That's what we think of, isn't it? When we think of Samson, we think of the unconventional way. He didn't raise an army. His deliverance were these unconventional methods. If you like, he was like a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path, striking at the Philistine nation. You know, this one man caused great pain, great discomfort and annoyance to the mighty Philistine nation. One commentator wrote this, he said, Excuse me, the exploits of Samson are famous examples of non-traditional warfare and the success of, of the few against the many and the small against the large. You know, we think about Samson's interactions with the Philistines. You know, they included burning their fields of grain. But he didn't just do it a normal method. He gathered up foxes, tied their tails together, put fire behind them and made them run through the fields. On another occasion, he killed a thousand men on his own with the jawbone of an ass. An unconventional method. One man defeating a thousand men. 
causing great pain. You know, his victory, his greatest victory, of course, came after he'd been put in prison. And we know how that came about because, you know, he was seduced by Delilah. He told her the source of his strength and she cut his hair. He became weak. The Philistines arrested him. They put out his eyes and they threw him into prison. But of course, when his hair was grown, he turned to the Lord and he cried out and, and he accomplished his greatest victory. He killed more in his death than he did throughout his life. Let's just go and read that. Judges chapter 16. I know we know the story well. <clears throat> in Judges chapter 16, let's just read from verse 23. It says, Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God and they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country which slew many of us. And it came to pass, when their hearts were merry, that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison, and they made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me, that I might, may feel the pillars, whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. And the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And there were upon the roof about three thousand men and women that beheld while Samson made sports. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once. O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines to my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein so the death sorry the dead which he slew in his death were more than they which he slew in his life and his brethren and all the house of his father came down took him and brought him up and buried him between Zohar and Eshtol in the burying place of Manoah his father and he judged Israel 20 years we know the story well Samson he's brought before the Philistines to make sport, they're laughing at him, they're ridiculing him, they're praising their false god. And Samson cries out to God, cries out for the Lord to give him strength one last time. Puts his hands upon the pillars and he brings down the house with all those in and those on the roof dying in this, this one act at his death. And it's in this victory in particular that many see a fulfillment of this imagery of the, the snake biting at the heels of the horse, throwing off its rider. Matthew Henry is one of those commentators. He says this, When he pulled the house down under the Philistines that were upon its roof, he made the horse throw his rider. And did many see that that's, the, that's an imagery here of what Samson would accomplish, that he would bite at the heels of the Philistines and kill more in his death here at the end. These 3,000 were killed. So, you know, as we look at Samson, we can see the imagery of a snake biting at the heels of the Philistine nation, achieving victories by unconventional means. One man bringing pain, discomfort, defeat to a mighty nation. But the imagery of the snake, as we said earlier, has a dual meaning, doesn't it? And so we've seen that sort of positive way, if you like, the judge, Samson. But it also refers to their craftiness their deceitfulness, their dishonesty. 
And so it speaks to us of their ungodly character. And we see this aspect fulfilled in their idolatry. And so we see secondly this morning the fulfillment seen in their idolatry. You know, the serpent throughout the word of God is a symbol for Satan, isn't it? Now the very first mention of the serpent, of course, is in Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent, the devil, deceives Eve into partaking of the fruit of the knowledge uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's go back there, Genesis chapter 3. Again, I know we know this passage well, but let's just read it, Genesis 3. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So the very first mention of the serpent in the word of God is when he, Satan, deceives Eve into partaking of the fruits, disobeying the Lord. You know, the devil demonstrated all of his craftiness, all of his deceitfulness as he beguiled Eve. And from that point on, the serpent really became a symbol for the devil and his work, his wicked ways. And Revelation 12 verse 9 sums it up well for us. Just go over there. Complete other end of the word of God. Revelation 12. Revelation 12 and verse 9 says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, which the de- sorry, called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That old serpent called the devil. Sums it up clearly for us. The serpent is a symbol for the devil and his work. And so this is true right throughout the scriptures. And it seems that this prophecy here alludes to that fact. It alludes to the fact that the devil will have a strong influence upon the tribe of Dan. A strong influence in their, their outcome, you know, their history, what they ended up doing. And you know, if we study their history, we see that this is true. You know, to their shame, the tribe of Dan struggled greatly with idolatry. They were the very first to establish idol worship as a regular state-run thing, if you like, official uh, basis. Okay? They set it up as a basis for their tribe. And eventually they became the center of idol worship for the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, this, this spiritual decline into idolatry started not long after Samson. It's interesting that the first fulfillment seen in Samson, the judge, and not long after that, we see this decline begin. Go to Judges chapter 18 with me. So, of course, Samson dies in Judges 16. In Judges chapter 18, we read of the spiritual decline of the tribe of Dan. <clears throat> Judges 18, just read with me verse 1. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites sought them an inheritance to dwell in. 
For unto that day all their inheritance had not fallen unto them among the tribes of Israel. And the children of Dan sent of their family five men from their coasts, men of valor, even from Zorah and from Eshol, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said unto them, Go, search the land, um, who went, sorry, who when they came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, they lodged there. And so here in verse 1 and 2, we, we see the Danites, they've become uh, disillusioned, if you like, discontent with the, the, the allotment given to them, the portion that was given to the tribe. They became discontent with it because they couldn't conquer it. They couldn't fully gain control of this region. And so rather than stay and fight for it, they decided we'll look somewhere else. We're going to move our, our inheritance. We're going to find somewhere else to dwell. And so they picked these five men as scouts to go out and look for this new region to settle in. And the scouts, they travel right up to the north, travel all the way to the north to the foot of Mount Hermon, right, which is near the, the, uh, the border of modern-day Lebanon. So they've gone a long way from where their inheritance is. Okay, They've gone right up to the north. And here they find a little town called Laish. Look in verse 7. It says, Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people that were therein, how they dwelt careless after the manner of the Zidonians, quiet and secure. And there was no magistrate in the land that might put them to shame in anything. And they were far from the Zidonians and had no business with any man. They find this tiny, little, sleepless city, Laish. It's described here as being careless, quiet, secure. The idea is this is a peaceful people living on their own, doing their own thing. They're very peaceful. They don't have any concerns. They don't have much defenses. They're just living in peace. And, you know, these five men see it as easy prey. They see this city, Laish, and they think, easy. We can take this city easy. And so they return home and they encourage their brethren to send an army and they, they go up and claim this land as their own. Look in verse 8. It says, And they came unto their brethren to Zoar and Eshtol, and their brethren said unto them, What say ye? And they said, Arise, that we may go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And are ye still? Be not slothful to go, and enter to possess the land. When you go, you shall come unto a people secure, and to a large land, for God hath given it into your hands, a place where there is no want of anything that is in the earth. And they went from thence to the family of the Danites, out of Zorah and out of Eshtol, 600 men appointed with weapons of war. And so they gather a force of 600 men, and they send them up to conquer this tiny little town, Laish. Conquer it because it's such a nice region all around. If we conquer them, we can have this portion of land as an inheritance. And so on their way up north, they stop in at a, a place where they'd stopped on the way up, these scouts. We didn't read that portion. They stop in and they, at the house of Micah and they persuade a Levite there in Ephraim to join them as their priest. And he brings with them a graven image from the house of Micah, uh, his former employee. Look in verse 18. It says, and, they went, uh, sorry, and these went into Micah's house and fetched the carved image, the ephod and the teraphim and the molten image. Then said the priest unto them, what do ye? And they said unto him, Hold thy peace, lay thine hand upon thy mouth, and go with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is, is it better for thee to be a priest under the house of one man, or that thou be a priest unto a tribe and a family in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod, and the teraphim, and the graven image, 
and went in the midst of the people. So they turned and departed and put the little ones and the cattle and the carriage before them. So they stop in on the way. They pick up this Levite and his graven image, his idol, and, and teraphim and ephod, it says, and they continue on their way up to this little place called Laish. They quickly demolish this city and burn it, and they establish a new city, and they call it Dan. Look in verse 27. It says, And it took, they took the th things <clears throat> which Micah had made and the priests which he had and came unto Laish unto a people that were quiet and secure, and they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Zidon. And they had no business with any man. And it was in the valley that lieth by Beth Rehob. And they built a city and dwelt therein. And they called the name of that city after the name of Dan, their father, who was born unto Israel. Howbeit the name of that city was Laish at the first. And so they conquer this place. And they rename it Dan. And they set up this as their new capital city for their tribe. They basically moved regions. They've decided this is where they're going to live now. And in this new city of Dan, they set up this graven image and they establish a priesthood with this priest who traveled with them. Look in verse 30. It says, And the children of Dan set up the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan unto the day of the captivity of the land. And they set them up, Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. And so we see this quick descent into idolatry. And they quickly set up their own graven image and they established their own priesthood. And it was synonymous with them from that point on. Idolatry was synonymous with the tribe of Dan. Commentator Wearsby said this, The tribe's conquest of the defenseless people of Laish is an example of their subtle tactics. And their setting up an image in their territory shows that they weren't wholly devoted to the Lord. Another said this, he said, This sad spectacle of greed combined with homemade idolatry indicates the inroads that the serpent had made to make, the, sorry, had begun to make into this tribe. Dan became a cult center for idolatrous worship. And so Satan is beginning to have his influence upon this tribe, a strong influence. And indeed, 200 years after this, when Jeroboam rebels against Rehoboam, okay, and he sets up the northern kingdom, there's a, the divide in the nation. You have the two kingdoms down, the north and the south, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam there in the north, he promotes idolatry to stop the people traveling south down to the temple. And in order to do that, he sets up two golden calves. One of them is in Bethel and the other is in Dan. Go over to 1 Kings with me. 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 28. says, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this became, sorry, and this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And so Dan becomes the center of idol worship for the northern kingdom, and it continued to be that way right up until the captivity when the Assyrians came and defeated the northern kingdom. 
You know, they were, if you like, a serpent, by the way, unto the nation of Israel. They caused great hardship, great shame to the nation. They dragged the nation down. Their idol worship became their legacy. And you know, we know how much God hates idol worship, don't we? You know, in the commandments, the Lord said, Thou shalt worship the Lord God only. You know, have no other gods before Him. You know, it's perhaps for this reason how much God hates idol worship. It's perhaps for this reason that Dan is left out of the genealogies in First Chronicles. You know, from chapter 2 right through to chapter 10, you have all the, the tribes listed and all the genealogies listed and Dan's not mentioned at all. They're not there. It's probably also for this reason that in Revelation, they're not mentioned as being part of the 144,000 Jews who were sealed. Just turn over there. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7 verse 4 says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Nephilim were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed twelve thousand. You notice who's missing? Dan, not mentioned. Dan doesn't get a mention there in Revelation. And it's perhaps for this reason. It's because of their legacy of apostasy, their legacy of idolatry, the fact that they were influenced so greatly by the serpents, by the devil, this satanic influence upon the tribe. And you know, it's probably this aspect of the fulfillment of their character. It's this aspect that leads Jacob now to cry out unto the Lord in prayer. And so we see thirdly here this morning, the fervent prayer of Jacob. Go back there to Genesis 49. (coughs) Excuse me. Genesis 49, verse 18. Jacob now cries out. He says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. You know, at first, verse 18 almost seems to be out of place, doesn't it? It seems to be out of place. I mean... He's just been declaring this prophecy concerning Dan. And then suddenly he cries out unto the Lord and he says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. It seems out of place. But you know, upon closer inspection, we realize just how appropriate this really was. You know, the Lord has just revealed to him the varied fortune of the tribe of Dan. You know, he's revealed to him this judge and he's revealed to him the satanic influence that will come upon the tribe. He's revealed to him the the varied fortune of this tribe. And after seeing the work of the serpent, the satanic influence upon this tribe, Jacob cries out to God for his salvation. He cries out for God to deal with sin, the problem of sin. You know, one commentator suggested this. He said perhaps his reference to the serpent and the heel reminded him of the original promise of a deliverer in Genesis 3:15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, 
and thou shalt bruise his heel. You know, perhaps as he's declaring this prophecy about the serpent, he remembers the promise. And he's crying out here, he's longing for the one who will come and crush the serpent's head. Defeat Satan once for all. Provide the solution to sin. He cries out for the salvation of the Lord. You know, it's interesting, the word salvation here is the word Yeshua, from which we get the name Joshua, and from which we also get the name Jesus. He cries out for Jesus, the Messiah. And we see this, this word salvation used in reference to the Messiah in Isaiah 62. Just go over there. <clears throat> Isaiah 62, verse 11. <clears throat> it's just one passage, but Isaiah 62, verse 11 says, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. The salvation of the Lord here is the Messiah. The Messiah, he is the salvation. He's the one that, that Jacob here is longing for. As he cries out here, he has been waiting for him in faith, with great expectation. He's waiting, he's longing for the Saviour to come, the Messiah to come and deal with the problem of sin. You know, Jacob's longing would finally be fulfilled when Christ came. When Christ came to earth, go to Matthew 1 with me. Again, I know we know these passages, but Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. It says, And she shall bring forth a son... And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the salvation of the Lord. We see Simeon make that declaration in Luke chapter 2. Just turn over there quickly. Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2 and verse 29. This is Simeon. He says, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. You know, Simeon here, as he's holding the baby Jesus, he looks down and he knows he's looking at the salvation of the Lord. And that's who Jacob here is longing for. As he cries out here and says, I've waited for thy salvation, he's crying out, longing for the salvation of the Lord, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, for him to come and, and to deal with sin finally once and for all. You see, he knew th that this was the only solution to sin, to the sin that was going to plague his sons. You know, he's just prophesied about the, the sin that's going to plague this, the tribe of Dan. And it burdens his heart to see his son and his descendants ending up that way. And he's crying out here for God to provide that solution, the salvation of the Lord. You know, Jacob looked forward in faith to the salvation of the Lord, but today we look back in faith to the salvation of the Lord. You know, as we already saw this morning, we came around the Lord's table. We look back to a completed work of salvation and we rejoice that it's already been won. 
you know, Christ has already won the, the battle. You know, the old serpent has been crushed. And now in Christ we can be free from the bondage of sin. Christ the Savior has won the victory. Let's go quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 55, it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has come and he has won the victory. Beloved, let us praise God this morning that as we look around at this sin-cursed world, and it is cursed by sin, that the serpent's influence is everywhere, isn't it? You know, as we look around and we see his influence, we know that Satan has already lost. He's already lost. Christ has come. The salvation of the Lord has come. And he is the solution to man's problem of sin. And beloved, we need to take that glorious message and tell them so that men might see before it's too late that Christ and Christ alone is the answer to their problem of sin. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the prophecy concerning Dan. And Lord, this dual meaning of the prophecy. Lord, it's sad to see the, the tribe of Dan end up so influenced by the devil through this idolatry, this, this idol worship that plagued them. But Lord, as Jacob cried out at the end, he cried out for your salvation. And Lord, we thank you that your salvation has come. The Messiah has come. We thank you so much for Christ. We thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you for the redemption that's ours through him. We thank you, Lord, that Satan has been defeated. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to rejoice this day in the salvation of the Lord. And Lord, may we indeed take the wonderful, glorious gospel message unto a lost and dying world. For Lord, he and he alone is the answer to their sin problem. Lord, may you bless now as we close. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.